MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That's what he said. That's what I said. That's obviously what our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, A.G., and today we're covering Chapters 7 and 8 of the book Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become an American by Wajahat Ali. Uh, These two chapters are about Waj's 20s and the evolution of his play called Domestic Crusaders. And chapter seven is called Become a Domestic Crusader. Waj tells us about how in 2001, he wanted to take a short story writing class from a guy named Ishmael Reed. Waj liked his name, Ishmael, but had no idea he was a MacArthur Genius Grant winner and two-time Pulitzer nominee. Waj had asked an English professor to recommend a class, and he said that Ishmael's class kind of lets you do your own thing. And that, along with his name, is what sold Waj on the idea. He submitted his application, which included a 10-page short story, and he did this about five minutes before the deadline. The only original 10-page piece he had, though, was a ridiculous fantasy about a talking donkey called All This for an Ass. So he handed that in just before the deadline. (laughs) Um, He was accepted, and he started the class, and just as the second piece was due, that's when 9-11 happened. And it wasn't until around 3 a.m. the day the story was due that Waj got the idea Well, he was accepted and he started the class. And just as the second piece was due, that's when 9-11 happened. And it wasn't until around 3 a.m. the day the story was due that Waj got the idea for his story. And he got the idea. uh, His idea was about a married couple who loathe each other so much that they each plotted to kill each other on their 15th wedding anniversary. Uh, Everyone loved it. And the professor um, then asked Waj to write a play. He's like, write a play, like, you know, Death of a Salesman or A Raisin in the Sun, but write it about a Muslim family in America. 20 pages. You have two months. And Waj tried to talk him out of it. And just let me just continue with the class, please. But Reed told him he'd be wasting his talent in the short story class, and he wouldn't take no for an answer and said, bye, see you in December, and then just turned around and faced his computer and kept working. Well, Waj spent a month on it. Right after his 21st birthday, he handed it in and figured, that's it. Cool. I'm done with the class. I passed the class. We're all done. Uh, It was a play about three generations forced to spend a weekend together in an old family home. Uh, And Reed then asked for just five more pages. Just five more pages. And it was about two years later on his 23rd birthday that he finished the play. He entitled it The Domestic Crusaders. He figured he could reframe the historically and politically loaded word crusades in light of George W. Bush's use of it to describe the war on terror. Now, Waj says finishing that play saved his life. He says he knows it sounds melodramatic, but stick with me. Uh, As everything around him 
was turning to dust and falling apart, the characters he had created would live and breathe on the page and on the stage. He says, quote, the universe was unable to take this one thing from me, so I invested everything in it. Now, in 2003, Waj graduated from Berkeley as an English major. Professor Reed had read The Domestic Crusaders and invited Waj and his parents to dinner at Sprenger's Grotto in the Bay Area. And that's where he told Waj he uh, needed to do a staged reading of the play. And that's um, when he introduced him to his wife, Carla, who would help him do that. And that brings us to the bottom of page 166. And this section is called How to Make the People Like an Ethnic Story. Waj says throughout the lifespan of the play, producers and agents kept telling him that ethnic stories have a hard time translating to mainstream because mainstream audiences will not identify with ethnic audiences. He always, he said, quote, I always replied, well, we're all ethnic. <laughs> and Waj mentions Rumi here, as we know, Muslim scholar in Turkey that wrote in Farsi 700 years ago, and he translates to mainstream. He also mentions his favorite movie, The Godfather. And despite there being no Muslims or Pakistanis, and trust, he says, trust me, I checked, in the movie, uh, nor does he speak Italian, but the movie still mesmerizes him. He says, quote, my peoples are more than just cannon fodder or terrorists or the end of punchlines. Our stories, cultures, languages, religions, and lives were rich, infused with vibrancy that could benefit the world. We just needed some miners to dig them up and share them. And, and Wash had faith that white people, often referred to as the mainstream, could cross the road with a little handholding and appreciate a story populated by brown folks. So Waj, Ishmael, and Carla all agreed that he should first get the buy-in from the South Asian and Muslim communities. So the first showing was at a restaurant called Mehran, and he got the owner to serve a five-course Pakistani buffet at intermission. And uh, they packed the house, and the play got a standing ovation. At the end, though, one of his uncles, or an uncle, I should say, came up to Waj after, afterwards and said, what is this playwriting? Do something useful like protest. Now, the next go-round for the play was going to be at the Berkeley Repertory Theater and San Jose State University. And this time, Waj wanted to prove the play could work with a more diverse, more mainstream audience. Waj and Carla did a little reconnaissance and noted during another play that they went to see at uh, the Berkeley Repertory Theater in, uh, during a matinee, that of the crowd of 300, there were 11 people of color in the audience. He says, well, 10.5, but I rounded up out of 300. And right then, Waj vowed to sell out the shows at the Berkeley Repertory with more diverse crowds. And that is exactly what he did. All of the shows sold out. They all had more diverse crowds. And all of them got standing ovations. But despite the success, an aunt or uncle would always come up afterwards and ask, but what do the people think? The people meaning white people. Now, a few months later, they did the play at San Jose State with the same result. They got a great write-up in the San Jose Mercury News and the San Francisco Chronicle, and the BBC actually did a 10-minute piece on the play. And again, despite the success, an agent who Ishmael introduced to Waj told Waj that the play needed more white characters to make it more mainstream so that white audiences would care, so they could relate. That agent and a few others also said he should strip out the Urdu and Arabic, but Waj says if he could work through Italian in The Godfather, he was confident people could work through other languages, too. And a Hollywood producer wanted to bring the play to L.A., but wanted to cast Ted Danson as the lead, a middle-aged Pakistani immigrant. And the agent said, quote, well, it's acting right. We can just put on makeup. It'll be fine. 
But still, Waj assumed all the positive energy would translate to more creative projects, right? All of this buildup and all this good, all these good things that were happening. I will get more creative projects. But it all appeared to fizzle. And at the age of 23, he decided to reapply to law school. He figured a law degree would be a great tool to have in his Batman utility belt, which is what he referred to as a skill set. And instead of being judicious and pursuing lucrative corporate internships during his first year, he actually spent his time premiering the play at the Berkeley Rep in San Jose State for limited weekend engagements. He graduated in 2007, passed the bar, and assumed he'd be able to score a lucrative job. Now, meanwhile, in the background, his parents' litigation was still continuing, and he wanted to stay close by because he might need to rush home and take charge again if shit hit the fan. Now, he was a licensed attorney, living back at home, broke, driving a busted Toyota Camry, and would spend most of his days applying to literally any legal job in the Bay Area. He was bombarded with rejections from attorneys who said they loved his play and they would just, you should keep writing. You should be a playwright. Quote, in hindsight, this time of poverty, rejection, and failure was a blessing for creativity. Unquote. He converted a law school paper into an op-ed that got picked up by Counterpunch. And over the following six months, he wrote for them. He cranked out thought pieces and political essays and movie reviews started a blog, built up a mailing list, and began receiving invitation, invitations to speak at panels as a, quote, social media journalist. Now, he eventually became a contributor to the Huffington Post and The Guardian. He was still broke and living at home. And then in 2008, when everyone thought Hillary was a shoe-in for the Dem candidate for president, Obama emerged as the favorite. And Waj thought, hmm, maybe now was the time for the play. If America can vote for this seemingly apparently Muslim man, which you, we know he wasn't, but that's what a lot of people thought. He thought maybe maybe now is the time for the play, and he vowed to premiere it in New York on September 11th in 2009, the next year, the following year. Now he just had to raise the money. So he reached out to everyone he knew and some people he didn't. He ended up emailing Emma Thompson, and not only did she su supply a review blurb for the play, but she gave him $25,000. And then he held additional fundraisers and spread the word about uh, about the play. And it got picked up. People started, it was like a whisper campaign. They started talking about the dude who was putting on a Muslim play in New York. And then he learned the art of the ask with some help from friends. And, uh, and Ziba Rahman also, who worked for the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, who was in the audience at a fundraiser one night. And walked up to him and was like, you got to ask, because he was very humble and weird about asking for donations. Now, Waj and Carla and Ishmael served as their own publicists, and eventually they got a big feature in the New York Times and a mention in the Wall Street Journal, as well as several TV spots, a couple nights before the play was set to open. And it was a smashing success. And the day after the, the final show, Ishmael told Waj that they were going to meet a friend of his and hang out. Turns out that friend was Toni Morrison who told him his play was brilliant, moving, shapely, clever, and funny. Quote, But the validation, the greatest validation, came from the kids who brought their parents to the show, high school and college students, budding writers, Muslims who didn't want to become doctors, urging their parents to imagine another path. Now, Waj used to tell people he fell into playwriting and had no training. But Carla corrected him. You and Kashif made all those movies when you were kids. You did the improv troupe and all those sketches. That was all training. You just didn't realize it. But you've been doing this forever. And that's so interesting to me. That he felt he fell into playwriting and had no training. It resonates with me. I assume we can all relate to that. 
people always ask me how I get into comedy. I said, it was an accident. How'd you end up podcasting? I just fell into it. <laughs> but you spent your life doing these things to prepare you for it. Now, after the, the play in New York City, after the run, that uncle who mocked him uh, and mocked his playwriting and told him, you know, why are you doing playwriting? Why don't you do something useful like protest? That uncle apologized to Waj. He said that after living in America for 40 years and doing everything right, he would still turn on the TV and see that he was portrayed as a terrorist or a cab driver and that he wished one of his sons would have become a writer. And he wished Waj well and prayed for his success. And Waj closes the chapter asking all those still striving to become American to invest in the present and future roomies of today. He says, quote, There is someone right now reading this book who has always dreamed of being a poet or a playwright or a comedian or a director, but has never had the encouragement. Sometimes a nod of approval or a compliment from a family or a friend is all it takes. The small gust of wind that lifts the sails. And that brings us to chapter eight. Die Hard 2, Die Harder in Amrika. Waj says he was a writer, he was a licensed lawyer, making his own name. Sure, he was still broke, stuck at home, single, in debt, in bankruptcy. But after eight years of living under that sword of Damocles with his parents' litigation, he finally felt that they might be spared. But then his parents lost their appeal, and his father was arrested again. It was 2010, and his parents had been out of prison They'd rebuilt their lives. They were all together. But just like that, the sword fell. And the court ordered five years in prison and $20 million in restitution. So the house was subject to forfeiture, and they were given 30 days to move out by the government. And his mom had six months to self-report to prison. There were no splashy headlines this time. And they held another garage sale, sold a bunch of stuff. But by this time, his daddy had left for Pakistan. She had been experiencing signs of dementia a year earlier. She'd keep repeating actions, losing her glasses. She would often have a blank look on her face. She was Waj's grandmother's sister-in-law. She was married to Waj's grandmother's elder brother, who tragically passed away early in the marriage. She had one son who also died in his early 30s. And she was all alone. Then she became Waj's grandmother's companion and helper. Waj says, I never understood why a loving God would be so unkind to a pious woman of immense spiritual strength. Her every happiness was taken from her. And she and Waj were very close. And he had promised her, once that he had his financial stability and had his feet underneath him, he would take care of her. She would never be alone, because that was one of her biggest fears, was dying alone. And his parents were worried about her health if they ended up in jail again, so they made arrangements for her in Pakistan and uh, flew her there. And while she was there, her condition deteriorated. And she passed away. And every time Waj visits Karachi, he pays his respects and apologizes for not keeping his promise. So Waj was about to turn 30, and everyone thought he was killing it. He'd made it, but he was living in a bedroom he shared with his mom in his uncle's house. He had one foot in success and the other foot in poverty. He said, quote, everyone thought I was achieving the American dream while I was living an American nightmare. But he says every time he was about to fall, an unseen hand would lift him up. And at that point, he got a call from the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. They were looking for a writer to do a report on Islamophobia which eventually became Fear, Inc., the roots of the uh, Islamophobia network in America. And uh, HBO was also asking him for a series pitch for a genre cop show to introduce a complex Muslim protagonist. And they gave him a contract to submit three drafts of a pilot. And on March 10th, 2011, he and his mother drove to prison so she could self-report. 
They checked her in in the office, then they hugged goodbye. And for the next three years, he would only see her during weekend visits to jail. Nawaj and his grandmother and aunt moved into a spare room with the family friend, and Waj was being invited to give keynote speeches and was making a little money. He was moving up, started to get his feet under him. He said, everything is looking great. And then he says, I almost died again. Now this time, he passed out at a 24-hour fitness. His heart was pounding. Aged 31, quote, a final hereditary gift or curse from my father's side was heart arrhythmia, unquote. Now, this had happened before when he was 14 and fasting during Ramadan, and it happened a couple more times during high school and in college, and his cardiologist told him he should go for an ablation, which is a surgery where they attach electrodes. They go in through the groin up to the heart, attach electrodes, and eliminate that faulty electrical pathway that causes the arrhythmia, but he postponed that because a family member was worried about it. And now lying on the floor at the 24-hour fitness, he wished he'd gotten it. (laughs) He was rushed to the hospital where they had to cardiovert him three times. That's using the defibrillator. You're usually unconscious when that happens, but he was was awake for it. It was extremely painful. And none of those three shocks worked. And then Wash talks about that myth of the tunnel of light and your life flashing before your eyes before you die. He says everyone should have a near-death experience. But he says he's talked to a lot of people who've had them. And he says there's five common stages, five things that happen right then. First... You ask for more time. Just give me some more time. This can't be it. I need more time. Second, you start bartering. I'll I'll be a better person. I'll quit this. I'll do this if I can just make it through this. Third, you do an audit of your life. That's like the life flashing before your eyes part. Think of all the things that you've done or not done in your life. Fourth, you think of your loved ones and hope for peace for them if you do, if you don't make it. And fifth, you think of your relationship and standing with God or the universe. And he says here, quote, that's one thing about faith that cynics can't knock. Even if it is a crutch, it gives hope. You feel you're not alone as you exit this earth and a loving God will embrace you on the other side. Now, Waj says he did have one regret, though, during those thoughts, that he let fear keep him from opening up and taking risks in relationships, that he should have tried to find love. And that's what gnawed at him in in those possible final moments, right? But as soon as he had that realization, his heart rate stabilized. He was okay. He left the hospital knowing he'd gotten some extra time. Everything looked new again. He felt rejuvenated. And he got the ablation. And within a year of that episode, he ended up eloping with Sarah in Washington, D.C. Now, both his parents were in jail, but they were highly supportive of the marriage. Um, And he didn't have anything. He had nothing, right? But he promised Sarah he would, quote, make it rain. Just be patient with me. I've got a lot of potential. And she looked at him and said, Wajahad, I'm not marrying you for your potential. I'm marrying you for the man you are right now. I immediately recognized I was a very lucky man, he said. He felt joy again. But then his daughter passed away. And by this time, she was in her 80s. And she kept, she said she kept living so she could see her son one last time and see him marry a good woman that would love him. And he said he was able to fulfill one of her wishes. Now, she had wanted a big wedding for Waj, but he was adamantly against it. He was like, I'm not going to do the ridiculous pomp pomp and circumstance of a traditional wedding. No way. And he was very stubborn about it. And so was she. And she had the guilt factor, too. So they ended up compromising on two big buckets of halal KFC, a tray of halim, and some shami kebabs. Sarah came to visit. And I should say, they were living apart. She was in D.C., and Waj was staying with Dottie in the Bay Area. 
right? And, and they were making a long distance thing work. And they had been married for three months now. But she came to visit and Dottie invited some family friends. They had a big party. And he said, we all felt joy. And for my grandmother and me, it was the first time in a long time. And then he says a month later, they buried her. And this was while Waj was in D.C. visiting Sarah after giving a speech in Cincinnati. He called her up. She picked up the phone and said she felt fine, was looking forward to seeing him in a couple of days. But within 30 minutes of hanging up, she suffered a massive stroke. So Waj rushed home and walked in the room. Her face lit up when she saw him. They watched football together. There were some cousins who had flown in to spend some time with her. And uh, Waj says she fell asleep that night and didn't wake up. The hundreds came to her funeral. You know, Waj had tried desperately to get a furlough for his dad so he could come, but it didn't work out. And his dad called during the funeral, and Waj says it was one of only two times he'd heard him cry, and he apologized both times. And Waj says there's no need for an apology. Now, Waj's mother was released from jail in 2014, and his dad was released a year later. And after a few months, they moved into a small home where they rent a room. A very nice landlord gives them pretty much use of the entire bottom floor. Wash says they went to prison optimistic and came out optimistic. And they actually consider themselves lucky. They weren't tortured or put in Guantanamo. It could have been worse, etc. And Waj asked his mom if being Muslim and Pakistani worked against them in prison. And she said, being brown, for sure. They nailed us. In prison, we were all minorities mostly. And it was post 9-11. But his dad's language about it is a bit more blunt, with words like corrupt, racist, broken, and flawed. And Waj says here that the dream of his grandfather taking him for a haircut finally made sense to him. It meant he survived. He was exercised. He was cleansed. He says, quote, standing anew after a forceful and painful shedding of my youth and innocence, I emerged from that awful decade, wiser, older, scarred, but still alive. The bad memories remain and sometimes cloud all the years of good, but I'm trying. I'm still trying to let go. Maybe it will help me recreate that perfect sleep. And that's the end of chapter eight. Next week, we'll finish the book with chapters nine and ten. And then the following week, we'll be joined by Wajahat Ali, the author, to answer patron questions. And so if you have a question and you're a patron, you can submit them on the post on the Patreon page or look for a link to submit a question in your email, the email you signed up for Supercast or Patreon with. Also, check out the latest Muller She Wrote. It's out today. And of course, I'll be back tomorrow with Dana for the Daily Beans. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. And vote blue over Q. I'm A.G. And this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. <laughs>